Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see all of you. Shortly after John the Baptist was born, his father, Zacharias, who was a priest, prophesied of his mission. Among other things, Zacharias prophesied of John the Baptist is that he would, as we read in Luke 1 and verse 76, Luke 1 and verse 76, that he would go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And in verse 79, he went on to say to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So part of the mission of John the Baptist was to guide our feet into the way of peace. Yet the world does not know the way of peace. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 59, beginning verse 1, Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and his sins have hidden his face from you, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks forth or breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. They have made for themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. So, God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Israel at the time of Isaiah, as well as this prophecy is for our day today as well, the way of peace they have not known, and whoever takes the way that he describes here shall not know peace, the way of iniquity. Now, this prophecy in Isaiah was directed toward Israel specifically, but that this prophecy applies to both Jews and Gentiles, in other words, to the entire world in general, is made plain in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, Paul wrote, For we are for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So he's writing here not just to, to the Jews, but to Gentiles as well, the, the um, reference to Greeks that is found often in the New Testament is really a word that applies to Gentiles 
in general, not only to the Greeks, but uh, often in the New Testament, the people of uh, Judah especially were referred to as Jews. And, uh, of course, they were scattered not only uh, within uh, Palestine, but over much of the world, most of the world actually, had uh, Jewish communities in, in uh, various locations in the Gentile world, in the Roman Empire and beyond. And uh, the term Greeks was just a generic term often in the New Testament for Gentiles. And the Israelites, of course, the people of the ten tribes of Israel had been scattered among the nations, and uh, they were uh, no longer necessarily identified as among uh, God's people, in a sense, because God had rejected them and scattered them for the time being. So they would be included either under the term Jews or Greeks. I guess you could take your pick on that. But, but in any case, it uh, would apply to everyone, to, to the entire world. And then in Romans 3, Paul goes on to quote or paraphrase various scriptures to make his point, and he includes the following in beginning in verse 16 of Romans 3, where he is quoting from this scripture in Isaiah at this particular point or paraphrasing it, where he says, destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. So it's not just Jews, it's the world in general that has not known the way of peace. But the Bible does make it plain that there is a way of life that is referred to as the way of peace. And yet few know the way of peace, even though it's John the Baptist's mission to guide us into the way of peace, few actually know the way of peace. The world with its chaos, confusion, strife, and conflict is not at peace. And the Bible confirms that most do not know, nor do they follow the way of peace. And yet, as a prophet of God, as we pointed out, it was his mission, John's mission, to guide our feet into the way of peace. When John began his public ministry, we read in Luke chapter 3, Luke 3 and verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So notice that in doing this mission that he had been given, he went about preaching a baptism of repentance and the remission of sins. Now, the church of God today shares the mission to prepare the way for God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. This was not a mission for John only. It's actually, in some ways, a mission for all prophets who have ever 
been servants of God, and it is also as a mission for the church of God to prepare the way for God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. And the church today also preaches repentance and the remission of sins. And it is our duty to follow the way of peace and to lead others into that way of peace by our example as well as what we proclaim. The church of God is called in Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> the light of the world. Matthew 5 verse 14, Jesus said, speaking to his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid or hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the church is to be a light to the world. We're to set an example an example that will be a testimony to the world and that will lead to the glorification of God through our example. We might ask ourselves, however, individually and collectively, do we ourselves know what is the way of peace? Do we understand the way of peace? And are we living the way of peace? Are we walking in that path? In today's sermon, I want to discuss the way of peace. And in particular, I want to discuss 10 facets of the way of peace or 10 specific behaviors we can practice to walk in the way of peace. And this is not intended to be an exhaustive list of <clears throat> actions you could take to accomplish that, but certainly it is a beginning. The first in the series of actions that we can take to walk in the way of peace is to follow the laws of God. You will not have lasting peace until you learn to obey God. The people of Israel were promised peace if they would obey God's laws. In Leviticus 26 and verse 3, Leviticus 26 and verse 3, God said to the people of Israel, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then he goes on in verse 6 to say, based on this premise, walking in the statutes and, and commandments of God, he said, I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. So peace was promised to Israel if they would obey his laws. The laws of God, when applied in our lives, tend to result in peace. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 1, Proverbs 3 and verse 1 it says, My son, do not forget my law but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. So keeping the commands of God 
tends to produce long life and peace. Doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll live a long life, but it tends toward that result. Your chances are much better if you obey God's laws, and your chances are much better of having peace, both peace in a personal sense, a mental peace of mind, tranquility, as well as peace in general. In Psalm 119, verse 165, Psalm 119, verse 165, it says, Great peace of those who love your law, and nothing causes them, uh, causes them to stumble. Great peace of those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. So one of the keys to having peace is to live according to God's commandments. A second principle concerning the way of peace and following the way of peace is to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. Now that same may seem ironic that walking in the way of peace involves and actually requires in this world that we contend for the faith. Notice how Jude connects peace with contending for the faith in Jude chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. Jude 1 and verse 2, Jude wrote to the church, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So notice in, in uh, telling the church or desiring, expressing the desire that they experience peace, he tells them in the next breath, to contend for the faith. And the two are directly connected, one with the other. We are in a world which is hostile to the truth, which is hostile to those who proclaim or seek to live by the truth of God's word. We are engaged in spiritual warfare to win the battle for peace within ourselves and in the world at large. The only way to peace is for us to engage and defeat our enemies in this spiritual war. Now we might ask, who are, are our enemies? First of all, one of our enemies is ourselves. It is our own carnal nature which we must overcome. In Romans 7 and verse 22, Romans 7 and verse 22, Paul wrote, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to, captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So Paul is speaking of a state of mind where one consents that the law is good and has a desire to 
obey the law of God, and yet there is another law, as he says in his members, that is, which is a part of his nature, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members or which is a part of my nature. That other law that Paul speaks of, warring against our desire to please God, is the law of sin, which is bound up in our carnal or fleshly nature. And the fact is that the fleshly mind of itself is enmity against the law of God, is not in submission to God's commandments. As we read in Romans 8 and verse 7, Romans 8 and verse 7, it says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject. We are not subject naturally to the law of God. In fact, we are, our fleshly nature is at war with God's laws. It is in a state of rebellion against the laws of God. Even, even when another side of our nature wants to obey God. So what is the solution to that dilemma? The fact is, even though the carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God and cannot be, yet at the same time, our efforts to follow God coupled with the Holy Spirit can enable us to overcome our carnality. We can be victorious over our own nature with the help of the Spirit of God, coupled with our own efforts. In Romans 8, verse 1, Romans 8, verse 1, Paul said, There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, if we resist the fleshly desires and impulses, and do not walk in that way, but resist it, and instead walk according to the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God, then we can overcome the flesh. And in verse 13 of Romans 8, we read, verse 13 of Romans 8, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we mortify the flesh, we put to death the fleshly lusts, desires through the power of God's Spirit. And that takes, that's, a, that's a daily war. It's a continual war that is, we're waging within our own nature, between our ears, in our minds and hearts. So that's part of the spiritual warfare that we are waging. Another of our enemies is the world, or more specifically, the spiritual forces that shape the world. In Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice it says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So I want to emphasize that our war is not a war against flesh and blood. It is not against human beings as such. It is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. It is against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, the demonic forces that influence and guide the world and plunge the world into evil and chaos. Now that doesn't mean that human beings are not a part of that equation because they are, because most people are deceived by Satan in this world and they are influenced by him and they're doing his bidding. And so in that sense, they're enemies of God. They may be our enemies. We'll deal with that later. But our war is not really primarily against flesh and blood. And we're not out to destroy people. We're not out to kill people or anything of that kind or persecute them or anything else. In fact, as we will point out later, quite the opposite. But the enemies of the truth are to be found not only in the world at large. We need to understand clearly that, that the church itself has repeatedly over the ages been subverted from within by those who seek to take it in a path that is contrary to the path of truth. And this has happened over and over again within the church of God. And there are many examples of that down through history. In fact, I was reading a book recently about South Africa. Actually, a couple of books about South Africa, but in one of them, it uh, pointed out a, uh, it discussed a group among some of the uh, black people in South Africa that uh, began to follow a religious leader, a black a religious leader, who proclaimed that they ought to be keeping the Sabbath and the Passover and perhaps other of the holy days of God and so forth. And he developed quite a following among certain tribal groups in South Africa, among the black peoples of South Africa. And there are actually a number of various uh, distinct groups of uh, black people in South Africa or were at that time and presumably are still today. But he uh, had a number of followers, thousands of followers eventually, and they called themselves the Church of God. They kept the Sabbath, they kept the Passover and perhaps other holy days. I'm not sure about that part of it, but... But uh, he died 
this particular leader died and was succeeded by another one, another man who proclaimed himself a prophet. And uh, these people had had begun to uh, live in a particular area in South Africa, and the and the government, for some reason, did not want them living there. So the government asked them to move elsewhere. And uh, they refused to do so. And they, this went on for some time, the negotiations between the government and this group of people. And finally, the government decided to move them by force. And this group of uh, people calling themselves the Church of God by that time had taken up arms and decided to to resist with uh, arms, weapons, what the government wanted them to do. And they were essentially wiped out. This is just one example in history of how the Church of God, if that indeed was a part of the church, and it seems based on what little information I have that it probably was a part of the true church of God because they were following at least ostensibly following the things that would identify the church and uh, yet these people were led astray eventually not that the government's actions were uh, was uh, correct either it, it was uh, just an unfortunate situation on all sides but that's just one example, and I'm sure you could think of many more if, you, if you're familiar at all with church history. But we see this warning in Jude chapter 1 and verse 4, Jude 1 and verse 4, certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many warnings, this being just one of them, in the scriptures about apostasy within the church. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, it says there were also false prophets. 2 Peter 2 and verse 1, there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. So walking in the way of peace requires that we be diligent and resourceful in overcoming with the help of God overcoming our own nature, overcoming the world, and overcoming those elements in the church even that might mislead us and deceive us. We must be watchful that we do not become victims of deception as we contend for the faith. But contending for the faith is one of the requirements for peace. A third element in 
the way of peace is to love other people. To love your brethren in the church. To love even your enemies. Now, although the world, as we just reviewed, is at enmity with God and with his people, we are to love God and we're to love other people, including our brethren and our enemies as well. We're to seek to live at peace with them, that is, other people, including our enemies, within the parameters of God's word. We are to seek to live at peace with everyone. We read in Matthew 22 and verse 35, Matthew 22 and verse 35, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we are to love God, of course, first of all, for, first and foremost, but we are to love our neighbors. And this is at the very core of God's law, of his way of life. And this uh, requirement to love the brethren is given a great deal of emphasis in the New Testament. In John 13 and verse 34, John 13, verse 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. He was speaking to his disciples. That you love one another as I have loved you and that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is one of the tests of discipleship is our love for one another. Do we have it? In John 15, verse 12, John 15, verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, speaking to his disciples, A greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, speaking to his uh, uh, apostles in particular here, but uh, he had appointed them as apostles and messengers. And he says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So we can expect to be hated by the world, but nevertheless we're to love one another. In Galatians 5 verse 13, Galatians 5, Paul writes to the church, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
through love, serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So we have a sacred duty to love one another and avoid as much as possible contention among ourselves. In Hebrews 10 and verse 24, Hebrews 10 verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, Peter wrote to the church, 1 Peter 1 verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, Peter wrote, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We don't each one have the same gift, but whatever our gift is, our gifts, as the case may be, we should cheerfully and w willingly serve one another with whatever abilities or gifts we have. We should, and we should do it in love toward one another. In addition to loving one another and our neighbors, our neighbors not, might not necessarily be a part of the church, but we have an obligation, an absolute obligation, to love them as well as to love one another. But we are also to love our enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we are to not only love one another, we're to love our enemies. Romans 12 and verse 17. Romans 12 and verse 17, we're told, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Notice it says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, it's obvious this is not always possible to live at peace with others. 
Jesus, for example, was persecuted and murdered, and uh, the, the apostles were persecuted and murdered, and many of God's people down through the ages, despite being peaceable, have been persecuted, and many of them killed. So it's not always possible to do that, but as much as depends on us, we are to strive to be at peace with others. It goes on to say in verse 19, Romans 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome of evil or by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we are to do good to all men as we have opportunity, including even our enemies. Now, I might mention that it is often our duty to speak out and identify sin as sin and condemn it, but we do not condemn sinners. It is not our duty our, or our responsibility to condemn sinners. It is our responsibility to love sinners and to help them in any way we can. Not help them to do evil, but to help them if they have need of help in ways that we can do good for them. And uh, so we need to understand the difference between condemning sin and condemning the sinner. We are told that we are to tell the people their sins in the hope that they will repent. That's part of the duty we have in preaching the gospel. But we must do that in love and do it in the hope that the message will help people to see their need for repentance. That's why we do it. We don't do it because we hate people. And at least we shouldn't do it because we hate people or because we de desire to see them destroyed. In fact, just the opposite. The fourth element of the way of peace that we can practice is submit to government. Submit to government with the caveat that we must not submit to the point of disobeying God's laws. An important key to peace is learning to submit to lawful authority. And this includes especially God's government, that is, God's rule over our affairs through His laws, but also government in the world and in the church. Though both may be flawed due to the flawed character of men. But there is government in the world and there is government in the church, and we are obliged to submit. By obeying lawful authority, one benefits from the potential rewards of doing so. 
One may avoid being subject to the penalties, for example, meted out to lawbreakers. I once knew an individual who decided fairly early in life that he was not going to file tax returns or pay taxes to the government. As the years went on, he lived increasingly in fear of being caught and was deprived of many of the advantages that might have been gained had he paid his taxes, such as being able to own property, such as uh, not having to hide from the law, such as uh, perhaps even eventually qualifying for government benefits like Social Security and so forth. And as a result of his willing refusal to, to file tax returns or pay taxes, he and his family were deprived of much of the peace that they might have enjoyed had he respected the law and yielded to the governing authorities. Now you can think of all the people in prison who had they obeyed the laws might not be in prison. Now some of them probably would be in prison because not everyone in prison necessarily belongs there, but most do because they broke the law. That is, they're, they're not necessarily uh, there because they were obeying all the laws of the United States, if that's the country they lived in or whatever the country might be. But uh, there are definite benefits to obeying the law. And it will tend to make your life much more peaceful and enjoyable if you obey the law. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1, it says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all, all godliness and reverence. Notice he says, Supplications, prayers, and giving of thanks be made for all men, including kings and those in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. In Romans 13, Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid." For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, 
but also for conscience' sake, for because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then in 1 Peter 2 and verse 13, 1 Peter 2 and verse 13, we're told, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we have a duty to yield to lawful authority, to give appropriate honor to those who hold offices in government, and to obey the laws of whatever government we are living under. Concerning government in the church, Peter wrote in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Hebrews 13 and verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this that you may be that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, to bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. So we are to be subject to lawful authority within the church and to uh, bear, as he says, the word of exhortation. In other words, not uh, chafe under instruction from God's word. Now, as I mentioned, there is a caveat to these instructions, and that is when there is a conflict between the clear requirements of God's word and the requirements human authority may lay upon us, we must obey God rather than men. We must always obey God first. And if there is a conflict, we must obey God first. When the apostles were commanded by the government in Jerusalem, and these were the religious authorities as well as the uh, civil authorities. The, the two were combined in that sense because even though the nation was under the authority of Rome, the uh, 
The Supreme Council among the Jews had civil authority under the Roman government as well as religious authority. And the apostles were commanded by the council, the chief council, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, not to preach the gospel. And they said, as we read in Acts 5, verse 29, Acts 5, verse 29, it says, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So we must obey lawful authority, but we must obey God's authority first because God is the supreme authority in the universe and obedience to him comes first before obedience to any lesser authority. A fifth element in walking in the way of peace is to honor one another. Honor one another. Give honor to one another. Giving honor to others promotes tranquility and peace. In Romans 12, verse 10, Romans 12, verse 10, it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. In honor, giving preference to one another. Now, if we actually practice this universally, that in itself would preclude many, if not all, of the disputes and feuds that occur between people, including people in the church. Being a self-promoter is something that is not pleasing to God. It is not pleasing to God to be a self-promoter and to seek honor for yourself, especially at, at the expense of others. In Luke 14, verse 10, Luke 14, verse 10, Jesus said, when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In Philippians 2, Philippians 2 and verse 3, we're instructed, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each esteem others better than himself. Do not act through selfish ambition. Goes on to say, let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now this principle applies within the church. It applies universally within society, but it also applies especially within marriage. Both husbands and wives should give honor to one another as we are instructed to do in God's word. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, 1 Peter 3 and verse 1, it says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely 
outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So women are told to honor their husbands by being submissive. That does not mean there would be a doormat or that they're to be treated in some disrespectful and uh, abusive manner by their husbands. This does not excuse or justify abuse in any way whatsoever. But the wife is to be submissive to her, her husband. And uh, there's a lot more to that that I won't go into right now, but that's, uh, that'll be saved for another sermon perhaps. But not only are wives to honor their husbands, husbands are to also honor their wives. As it goes on to say here in verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them, that is with your wives, with understanding giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. So a husband who is giving honor to his wife is not going to mistreat or abuse his wife or abuse his a position as the head of the family to the detriment of his wife's happiness and, and uh, welfare. Rather, the husband is to give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing." For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Not as we're told in this context, to seek peace and to pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if you want peace, then learn to live in harmony with others, honor other people, and if you're married, honor your husband or your wife as the case may be. Doing those things will add a great deal of peace to your life. The next element in walking in the way of peace that I want to discuss is to endure trials patiently. This is number six, by the way, if you're keeping count. Endure trials patiently. We need to understand that trials are a part of life. And some have thought if, if you're in the church, you're not supposed to ever have a trial, but that's not the way it works. <laughs> uh, 
If we are to have peace, we must learn to endure patiently whatever life throws at us, even as we do our best to live our lives in a godly and industrious way. And, of course, try to avoid trials as much as possible. But sometimes, despite our best efforts, we have trials. And sometimes trials are given to chasten us. When that is the case, we are admonished in Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 5, to do the following. Where the writer of Hebrews, whom I believe was Paul, said, you have forgotten the, uh, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So sometimes there are trials we bring on ourselves and God chastens us, punishes us by sending a trial upon us. That does not apply, however, to every trial that we might have in life, perhaps not even the majority of them. Trials occur to all people and trials occur to some people more than to others and not infrequently, trials occur through no fault of the person who is doing the suffering. Yet even in such circumstances, we are called upon to exercise patience in dealing with our trials. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 19, 1 Peter 2 and verse 19, it says, This is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So we can suffer even for doing good. And we're told that we are to take it patiently. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 13, 1 Peter 3 and verse 13, Peter wrote, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. 
For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And in 1 Peter 5, and beginning with verse 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, even though we may have to suffer trials, we need to realize that our suffering is limited in terms of duration. Sometimes it may seem like it lasts forever. A trial is going on forever with no hope in sight. But even if it may seem that way, it's not really that way at all. All trials will have an end. All trials are temporary. And eventually God is going to resolve whatever the problem is. Whatever suffering we have to endure in comparison with eternity is but for a short time. As we read in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Yes, it's very easy to focus on our trials because they're real and they are present. The eternal glory that we will share with God and His kingdom is something that we do not currently see. We're not experiencing that yet. But we need to try to focus on that hope and see that there is ultimately a way out of our trials and strive to be at peace even in the midst of trials. And if we bear them patiently, the end of it will be peace. The seventh element in walking in the way of peace that I want to discuss is do not envy. Do not envy others. The disciples of Jesus sometimes exhibited jealousy and covetousness. And jealousy and envy destroy peace among brethren. Eventually, if it goes far enough, it will destroy the brethren. And the same principles apply to nations as well as individuals. 
In Mark 9, verse 33, Mark 9, verse 33, then he, that is Jesus, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, his disciples, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silence for, silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So what he was telling them is do not be envious, do not be jealous of others, do not be seeking to exalt yourself above others, but if you want to be considered great in the eyes of God, then learn to serve others with humility out of a pure heart. He went on to say in verse 50 of Mark 9, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is a metaphor telling us that if we are to be the salt of the earth as we're supposed to be, then we can't be envious and jealous of others or seeking to exalt ourselves. But rather we are to seek to be at peace with one another. James wrote in James 3 and verse 13, James 3 and verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And we do not make, make peace by practicing envy and self-seeking. The eighth element of walking in the way of peace that I want to discuss is control your tongue. Control your tongue. Often peace and tranquility is disturbed by an unruly tongue. In Proverbs 16, verse 27, Proverbs 16, verse 27, it says, An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. An ungodly man digs up evil and it's on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. In other words, misuse of your tongue produces strife and Division among other uh, among people who ought to be as one. 
In Proverbs 26 and verse 20. Proverbs 26 and verse 20. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tail-bearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So again, tail-bearing, gossip, slander, and similar misuse of the tongue leads to strife and problems and a lack of peace. James 3, we read James 3, beginning with verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And, is it, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an, an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. It ought not to be so. And as James said, anyone who has perfected control over his tongue, who never stumbles in anything he says, is a perfect man. And I dare say none of us has attained to such perfection. But with God's help, each one of us ought to strive for perfection in the things that he or she says. We need to seek perfection in the use of our tongues. Gill's commentary on verse 8 here where it says, no man can tame the tongue. He says, no man can by his own power and strength tame or subdue his tongue or restrain it from evils. It is habituated to, be it lying, cursing, swearing, or what else. God, by His Spirit, power, and grace can and often does change the note of the cursor, swearer, liar, and blasphemer, but no man can do this, though he can tame beasts, birds, serpents, and fishes, which shows the tongue to be worse than anything to be found in the whole compass of nature. So we can learn to control our tongues with the help of God's Spirit and eventually at least draw closer to perfection, if not achieve perfection in this flesh. 
But we should be striving to control our tongues. In Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 12, Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 12, it says, The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. And Colossians 4 and verse 6, Colossians 4, 4 and verse 6, it says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So we need to strive to have gracious speech. We are instructed to avoid foolish disputes. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, it says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So, <clears throat> try to avoid getting into foolish disputes, foolish and ignorant disputes that merely generate strife. We should be reflecting on and evaluating the things that we say. Are our words edifying, we might ask? Are our words the truth? Do we engage in slander, gossip, and lies? We need to ask ourselves, we need to examine our speech and evaluate it. Because sound speech is vital to peace. The ninth factor or element in following the way of peace that I want to discuss is be diligent in your own business and don't meddle in other people's business. Be diligent in your own business. Don't meddle in other people's business. Peace is disturbed when someone meddles inappropriately in the affairs of someone else. People don't necessarily appreciate someone else trying to run their affairs. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't offer advice, especially when it might be welcome, but we need to be very judicious in how we advise others and realize that advice is just that. It's advice. It's not necessarily us trying to control someone else's life and make their decisions for them. Chances are they're not going to let you do that anyway, and it's just going to lead to problems. But in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 9, it says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Notice he said one of the things that he was urging the brethren to do is to mind your own business. 
2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11, it says, We hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, that person, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now notice in the context of expressing a desire for peace, Paul tells the people here in verse 11, we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. This verse in the International Standard Version is translated this way, verse 11. We hear that some of you are living in an idleness. You are not busy working. You are busy interfering in other people's lives. Or as it, it uh, phrases it in Clark's commentary, they are being impertinent, impertinent meddlers with other people's business. So we are given clear instructions in the scriptures to not be meddling in other, in other pe people's affairs but rather to mind our own business, to work and be productive and industrious ourselves, but not be trying to interfere inappropriately in other people's lives. All that does is create problems and a lack of peace. The tenth and final element in walking in the way of peace I want to discuss today is exercise forbearance. Exercise forbearance. In Colossians 3 and verse 12, we read, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. If we are to live at peace together, we must learn to exercise forbearance with one another. In Ephesians 4 and verse 1, Ephesians 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, the prisoner of the, uh, uh, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word translated bearing here, 
or in the King James Version, it's translated forbearing, is the Greek word anekamai, which means literally to bear with or figuratively to put up with, to bear with, to endure, to forbear, or to suffer. So we must learn to be patient in enduring the perceived faults of one another, and we all have faults. None of us is perfect. Every one of us has faults of one kind or another. And if we are to be at peace, then we must learn to put up with one another without gossiping, without slandering, without spitefulness or backbiting or other kinds of um, manifestations of ill will. Now, that's not necessarily easy to do, but we have to strive to do it nevertheless. We're told in Matthew 5, verse 9, Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We need to learn to be peacemakers, to strive to be peacemakers, and to walk in the way of peace. In this sermon, we've discussed ten actions that can help us to do that, to walk in the way of peace. They are follow the laws of God, contend for the faith, love other people, including your brethren and your enemies, submit to government, but not to the point of disobeying God's laws, honor one another, endure trials patiently, do not envy, control your tongue, be diligent in your own business, and don't meddle in other people's business, and exercise forbearance. Being diligent and exercising these principles can help us make a great deal of progress in following the way of peace.